Father, I, I pray that we would humble ourselves before you this morning and remember that you are the one that's great, that you are the one that's bigger than we are. Uh, Lord, we come to you as your children to receive from your hand. We ask that you will provide for us. Lord, um, we give ourselves to you and say that we will uh, understand and believe what you say um, and that we will do what you command us, Lord. So please speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I want you to try to bring to mind someone with whom you have nothing in common. All right? They're not like you at all. They don't enjoy what you enjoy or think the way you think or do life the way you do life or believe what you believe. You have nothing in common with them. Can you think of someone? Okay, well, I want you to keep that person to yourself, but keep that person in mind during this sermon. I'm guessing a lot of you came up with somebody in your own family. <laughs> um, but that's a person with whom you have nothing in common, right? And commonality is important, right? Uh, so having things in common with someone builds trust with that person and friendship. That's the, that's the foundation for friendship. But when you have nothing in common, it leads to alienation and even hostility with that person. So a lot of marriages break up because the couple decides that they no longer have anything in common. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to talk about today. <clears throat> Commonality. Um, some of the most important things that we share in common with our human brothers and sisters, no matter how different they might seem from us. Because they're things that Paul realized that he had in common with the Gentiles in the Areopagus when he spoke to them at the end of Acts chapter 17. So we're in Acts 17 today. Please look that up in your Bibles. Um, and we read through the whole chapter, but I'm going to focus on just the last part, starting at verse 22, the part where Paul stands up to address the Areopagus. But first of all, I'm going to set that with a bit of context. So um, last week, if you were here, you might remember that Taylor showed us a map of Paul's second missionary journey that he took with Silas and Timothy. Um, and he showed us where Paul went. And the direction Paul took on that journey was a whole lot to do with how the Holy Spirit led them. Do you remember? Um, the Holy Spirit hustled them on through Turkey and into Greece. So Paul wanted to go into Asia, but no. The Holy Spirit stopped them going that way. And so Paul turned and he headed toward Bithynia. But no, the Holy Spirit stopped them going that way too. And instead, he called them over into Macedonia, uh, into the cities of Philippi, and then Thessalonica, and then Berea. And today, Paul gets all the way south into Athens. So all along this part of the journey, they were getting further and further away from Jerusalem, where Jesus was raised to life and where it all started. And they were constantly breaking new ground, pushing the frontiers of the kingdom of Jesus out west into Europe, deeper and deeper into Gentile territory. But in every new city, they followed their pattern of starting in the local synagogue. And they brought the gospel of Jesus first to the Jews in the synagogue. And then only once the Jews had heard it, did they bring it to the Gentiles in the city also. And we've also seen along the way that almost all of the opposition that Paul got uh, to his message came from the Jews and not from the Gentiles. So over and over again, it was the Jews, Paul's own people, who violently opposed his message and got him thrown out of town. And then they followed him from town 
to town, chasing him on. So here in Acts chapter 17, Paul is bumped from Thessalonica to Berea, and then on all the way down to Athens. And we're going to pick up his story in verse 22, when he stands up to speak in Athens to the Areopagus. So Paul came to the city of Athens alone. Okay, think about that. He was the only Christian in the whole city. Uh, so he usually traveled uh, in, in missionary partnerships with, uh, and this time with Silas and also Timothy, but they're not with him as he comes to Athens. He's alone. Um, and Paul got to Athens and he saw that the city was full of idols. And Paul's spirit was provoked within him. He was in agony for these poor people who were stumbling around in darkness. And he just had to do something about it. So even though he was all alone in the city, Paul started going to the synagogues to reason with the Jews and going to the marketplace to reason with the Greeks. And his message was so new and so striking that the people who heard it brought Paul to the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus was, and is, a big outcrop of rock right in the center of the city of Athens. It's very near the Acropolis. And its name means, in Greek, the Rock of Ares. And Ares if you know your Greek mythology, was the son of the chief god Zeus and the brother of Athena, after whom Athens was named. And Ares uh, was the god of war. His Roman name was Mars. Uh, so this place was known to the Romans as Mars Hill. You might have heard it called that as well. So the Areopagus is Mars Hill. Um, and the place was a kind of court. It was a place of judgment where important cases were tried, and it was also a sort of debating forum where new ideas and philosophies were discussed. So Luke says about it in verse 21 that the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Something new. They were addicted to novelty. And that seems to be their main motivation in inviting Paul to speak there. They just wanted to hear something new, anything new. <laughs> so Paul stood up and he addressed the Areopagus, the leading men of Athens. These are the intelligentsia, the well-educated philosophers and judges. And he's right in the cultural, philosophical, and religious capital of the Greek world. And so it's fascinating to see what he says here to these people and to compare it with his earlier sermons in the synagogues, like in Antioch and Pisidia back in Acts 13. So when we look, we see that back there in the synagogues, Paul's message was deeply rooted in Jewish history, in the promises that God made to David and the words God spoke through the prophets. But here in Athens... He knows that none of that carries any weight in this context. No one in the Areopagus cared about David or the Old Testament, so arguing from Jewish history and theology wasn't going to get him anywhere. His message to the Greeks contains not a single quotation from the Old Testament, no mention of Abraham or David or Isaiah or even Jesus, and no Jewish words like Messiah. <coughs> Instead, the people Paul quotes from in this sermon to the Areopagus are both Greek philosophers. So in verse 28, he quoted Epimenides of Crete, who said, in him we live and move and have our being. And Epimenides was a famous philosopher and poet from the 6th or 7th century BC, and he was something of a hero in Athens, because according to Plutarch, Epimenides purified Athens 
from ritual uncleanness and so averted the displeasure of the gods. And the other person Paul quotes is also in verse 28 when he says, for we are indeed his offspring. And that's a quotation from a poem called Phenomena by Aratus. And Aratus was a Greek poet who was a famous disciple of Praxiphanes in Athens. So these two men weren't just any old Greek philosophers. They were particularly important figures in the history of Athens. Paul knew where he was and who he was talking to. It's a bit like going to Gettysburg and quoting Lincoln, or going to Stratford-upon-Avon and quoting Shakespeare. Paul knew who he was talking to. Another feature of Paul's address to the Areopagus is its style. So I can't tell you this myself, but according to people who know a lot more Greek than I do, uh, this address by Paul is very skillfully and artfully composed. It demonstrates excellence in the highly prized Greek art of rhetoric. So Paul showed his audience, who were used to hearing great skillful oratory, that he had real chops. So those are some things that set this address apart from the synagogue sermons we've heard Paul preach earlier in Acts. But as I said at the beginning, I want to focus today on the commonality. Because what I think is most amazing about what Paul does in this address is that he's really able to connect with his audience, to come alongside with them, and to build trust with them. So he's able to climb into the skin of an intellectual polytheistic Hellenist and see things from his point of view, and to show that deep down we're all the same, that the things we share are far greater than our differences. So here are three important areas of commonality between Jews and Greeks, according to Paul, and they apply, I think, to all humanity. First, we have a common problem. Second, sorry, first we have a common father. Second, a common problem. And third, a common signpost hope. All right? So I want to think about those three things in turn. First, we have a common father. Paul connects with his audience by noting first that they're very religious. And then he says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So he says, the God, the God, the one God, and he cuts right through their polytheism. It's a direct challenge to Zeus and Ares and Athena and all the rest. The God, who's identified how? As creator. The God who made the world and everything in it. The creator is naturally Lord of heaven and earth. He made it and he owns it. And that's a direct challenge to Caesar. Because the dogma of Rome was Caesar is Lord. But did Caesar make the world and everything in it? No. Then Caesar isn't Lord. God is Lord. One creator, one God. He made you and he made me and he's bigger than either of us. Verse 25 says that he isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So the true God is the giver. That's what Paul wants to tell them about the character of God. He doesn't take from us because he doesn't need anything. Instead, he gives to us life and breath and everything. He is the giving God, which is in stark contrast to the whole pantheon of Greek gods. That petty, jealous, squabbling menagerie. None of them are givers. 
They all just take and take and take. So this characteristic sets apart the true God from the rest, that he is the giving God. And Paul says we are all his children. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And then verse 29, we are therefore all God's offspring. So we have a common father. And that sounds obvious, but I think it's important to remember. So we just had Earth Week last week, um, and I was driving down Tennessee and passing the veterinary clinic that's on, on Tennessee. Uh, and they have a big sign outside, and it says, Earth is the thing we all have in common, right, for Earth Week. And I guess that was some sort of attempt to get us all to lay down our weapons and forget our differences and care for our planet, because Earth is the thing we all have in common. And while we're at it, we could adopt a kitten. Um, so for sure, yes, yes, we do all have the Earth in common. We were all born here, we all live here, and we need this planet to survive. No one lives on any other planets, at least not yet. Um, but if that's all we can really say, that Earth is the thing we all have in common, how pathetic is that? No, God is the thing we really have in common. He's what unites us into one human family because we were all made and are all loved by the same God. And that might sound simple and obvious, but it's actually totally game-changing. So try saying that in your heart to that person you thought of at the beginning with whom you share nothing in common. Say to that person in your heart, the God who made me and loves me also made you and loves you. Amen. And see how much your heart changes toward that person when you remind yourself of that. It means something. Mm. It gives us compassion because we're all God's offspring. It means so much more than that we all walk around on the same planet. So that's the first commonality, that we have a common father. But second, we also share a common problem. And in a nutshell, the problem is that we're disconnected from that father. We've forgotten who he is. And so we're reduced to building altars to an unknown God. So both the Jews who chased Paul out of Thessalonica and the Greeks who filled Athens with idols had forgotten their true God. Because what happens when we forget God is that we start to think that we're in charge. That we're the greatest being in the universe. That we should decide who lives and dies, who gets rich and who stays poor. Forgetting God always leads to a swell of pride. And we immediately take God's seat for ourselves. We put ourselves in his place. And all the evil that's ever been seen on earth has started that way. Always the same way. Move God aside, take his place, and usher in the darkness. And have you noticed that people can be very religious without ever once climbing out of God's seat? We do it all the time. So the Jews did it in Thessalonica when they rejected Paul's message about Jesus and then went right back to singing their prayers in the synagogue. No thank you, not interested in the actual God, just this familiar one that I can control. And the Greeks did it in Athens when they built their many altars. They manufactured their own gods out of gold and silver and stone. Gods who were smaller than they were, lesser, 
Gods they could control way more comfortably. Cults still do that today when they design their own religions, always with a human being sitting in God's seat. And people are doing it all around our city when they dabble in New Age philosophy and the occult. They don't want the God of heaven, not a God who's actually there, who's bigger than they are, just a model of him they think they can control. A God of manageable size, one who won't make us get out of his seat. We can be all kinds of religious and spiritual without ever once getting up out of God's seat. And even many Christians go to church without getting up out of God's seat. They come every Sunday to pay a small tribute to a small God who's less than they are and won't ask of them anything hard. Mm. And they claim to know and follow his word while ignoring everything it says about holiness or sexual purity or money or social justice or concern for the poor. Because their God is small and feeble and there's no muscle behind his warnings. He'll be appeased by a few scraps thrown in his direction while we continue to sit in his seat. But Paul says, friends, your God is too small. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. We share a common problem, which is our ignorance of the true God. We've forgotten him, and then we've pushed him aside, and then we've swelled up with pride, and then we've sat down in his seat. And God has overlooked this ignorance in the past. He's been merciful. He's remembered that we're dust, and we really don't know what we're doing. But please do not mistake his past mercy for permission, because now he commands all people everywhere to repent, all the people that he made and loves. He commands them to come back, to know him again, and to give his seat back to him. Because there will be a judgment day. And we don't know what it is, but it's coming. And make no mistake, there will be anger and terror on that day for anyone that God finds sitting in his seat. Ignorance is no longer an excuse. Agnosticism, same Greek root as ignorance, not an excuse. So get up. Give his throne back to him before it's too late. We have a common father and a common problem. Now finally, there's a common signpost, home. It wouldn't be very kind to bring up the problem without explaining the solution, or to tell you to get out of God's seat without explaining clearly what that means in practical terms. So Paul does both of those things in his answers right here in Acts 17. All people everywhere have the same clear sign that points them back home to God. The same trail of breadcrumbs they can follow, and it works for both Jews and Gentiles. It's a map that anyone can follow, so no one needs to get lost, and no one needs to be ignorant anymore. The signpost is a man raised from the dead. Resurrection is the answer. In Paul's sermons, both to Jews and to Greeks, the resurrection of Jesus is the destination. 
It's the part of his message he most wants to get to. It's usually the last thing he says, maybe not because he didn't have anything else to say, but because the moment he mentions a man raised from the dead, he gets a big reaction, and his audience won't let him go any further. Because the resurrection of Jesus is like a big rock that's laid across your path, and you either smash your shins on it and stumble over it and decide at this point to give up on finding God through Jesus, or you climb on top of it and decide to build your life on it. But it's got to be one or the other. The resurrection can't be nicely incorporated into your existing worldview. So it either becomes your new foundation stone or it gets thrown out. So the news of a man raised from the dead is divisive. It separates people into those who scoff at it and those who want to hear more about it. And that's what we see happening here in verse 32. The resurrection of Jesus was at the heart of Paul's message to the Areopagus, just as it was in all of his Jewish sermons. So it's the common signpost home for everyone. The answer all people are looking for. But the road that leads up to that signpost home isn't the same for everyone, because not everyone is asking the same question. The Jews in the synagogue in Antioch knew their God by name, and they trusted his promises that he would send the Messiah to rescue them. So their question was, how will we recognize the Messiah when he comes? And Paul's answer to them was, by his resurrection from the dead, according to the scriptures. But the Greeks in the Areopagus had no such history with God, and instead they were flooded with myths and rituals about a hundred different gods. So their question was, can any of this jumble lay a legitimate claim on my heart and life? And to answer this, Paul had to add a step, like a secondary signpost, that pointed to the main signpost of the resurrection. He had to first show them that there was one creator, one God who made us and isn't made by us. And he, and he says all that to them. But the way he backs it up uh, is in verse 26. So Paul says this in verse 26. He says that God determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That's a really difficult verse. Uh, I spent a long time pondering that verse this week. It's hard to understand what Paul's talking about. Um, but I think what he's saying there is what we might call science. Okay? Follow me here. Because when Paul talks about allotted periods in verse 26, he uses the Greek word kairos, which means the appointed times. So the seasons that are governed by the movements of the sun and the moon and the planets and the stars. So that's early cosmology. And when he talks about the boundaries of their dwelling place, he means the rules that limit where an individual species can and cannot live. And we would call those the laws of physics and biology. So I think in verse 26, the secondary signpost that points to a creator is science, at least an early kind of science. And, and Paul says that it leads people to seek God, the one creator God, and even helps them to feel their way toward him and to find him. So science, then, is a useful secondary signpost for people who don't know the living God through the Old Testament scriptures. And that might surprise you. So let me give you an example of how that might work. You woke up this morning, and it was Sunday, 
is the day we gather for church because we gather once a week every seven days. Why seven? Why do weeks contain seven days? Why not six or eight or ten? Could be anything, right? Aren't we free to choose that? As a society, I mean. It makes sense that ancient Israel's week had seven days because of their creation story. In six days God made the world, and on the seventh day he rested. But we derive our seven-day week from the Roman Empire. And Rome had seven days in its week long before it conquered Israel. So did Greece. In fact, as far as we can tell, every ancient civilization on earth has grouped weeks into seven days, and they all have different creation stories. Over time, some cultures have experimented with changing the length of their week. They've tried a 10-day week instead. It doesn't work. The idea quickly, quickly crashed. The seven-day week is decreed by the sun and the moon. As the Earth orbits the sun in a year, there are four events. The summer solstice when the day is long, the winter solstice when the day is short, and the two equinoxes where day and night are of equal length. And that breaks the year into four equal seasons that the trees and the plants obey. And within each season, the moon makes three cycles from new to full and back again. Three months to a season, four seasons to a year, 12 months per year. The same for everyone, everywhere. The lunar cycle is 28 days, and it has four notable events. New moon, waxing, full moon, waning. 28 days in four parts. Leave seven days a week for everyone, everywhere. Seven is four and three. Then four weeks make a month. Three seasons make a three months make a season. Four seasons make a year. Four, three, four, three, four. No one made that up. Everyone independently derived it because of the sun and the moon throughout history and all over the world because they heard what the sun and the moon were saying and there's meaning written there and all the ancients saw it no one missed it and they went looking for their creator that's what Paul means when he talks about kairos the allotted periods and of course that's only the beginning planets have seasons stars have seasons the Mayan culture predicted things 5,000 years in the future based on the stars. And it's all meaningful. It goes on and on and on. So all of that together we might label science, at least an early form of science. And Paul points to science as the lesser sign that points to the greater sign of resurrection. Because naturally, the one who wrote in all those patterns had the authority to interrupt them and reverse the one-way process of death. And when he did, even Gentiles could recognize him as creator. So the resurrection of Jesus was the answer to the Jews and also the answer to the Greeks. It answered their question, can any of this jumble lay a legitimate claim on my life? Yes. Yes, this can. This alone demonstrates the power of the one creator. So this is the sign to follow, the sign that points home to God. Jesus is the one we ought to stand up for and yield the chair. 
Jesus, the one who came back from the dead. He's the rightful occupant of the seat, the driver's seat, the throne of your life. So we stand up and give it back to him and let him drive us home. So let me explain clearly and simply what I mean by that. Getting up out of God's seat goes like this. You say to God in prayer, in any way you like, because he can hear you, however you say it. God, I realize that here I am, in your seat. I'm charting my own way in life. I'm deciding for myself what's true and right and good. And I'm listening to voices other than yours. But I've come to realize that's not right. You're bigger than I am. You made me, you love me, and you want to leave me. And now I want to let I recognize Jesus as the right one to lead me. He's my good shepherd because he was raised from the dead. Jesus, I'm sorry I took your seat. Please take it back and lead me home to God. I'll believe what you teach me and go where you send me and do what you ask of me and all that I have is yours. And that's a great start and he can take it from there. So we're all different, made wonderfully different by an infinitely creative God but we have these most important things in common. That we have a common father. We're made and loved by the same God. He's for you and for me. He wants your good and my good. We have a common problem in that we've forgotten him, pushed him aside and taken his place, and then we've screwed up in major ways. It's embarrassing, but it's a shame that we all share, so we don't need to hide it from each other. And third, we have a common signpost back home, which is the resurrection of Jesus. It points all of us home, and it answers your deepest question and mine, even though they're not necessarily the same question. And so with these deep things in common, we can have compassion for each other and help each other out of ignorance into knowledge and out of idolatry into true worship. Amen.